Welcome to the Unconventional Dyad Podcast, where you'll find broad topics, an unconventional dyad, and one shared goal. Educating ourselves through challenging and engaging conversations. Your hosts are Carly and Laura, two graduate students and friends committed to having discussions that are real, raw, and unpolished. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to episode 11 of the Unconventional Dyad podcast. Today we have Angela Lang as our guest on the episode. Angela is the founder and executive director of Black Leaders Organizing for Community, also known as Block. She was born and raised in the heart of Milwaukee, and she has extensive background in community organizing. In the past, Angela served as both an organizer and state council director for the Service Employees International Union, working on such campaigns as the Fight for 15. Before joining Block's team as executive director, Angela was the political director with For Our Future Wisconsin. She is a graduate of Emerge Wisconsin and has had the pleasure of being the featured trainer for Emerge's Diversity Weekend since 2015. Angela is motivated by making substantial and transformative change in her community while developing young local leaders of color. Her journey in organizing hasn't always been easy, but through it all, she has remained a fierce advocate for securing more seats at the table for those who represent the new American majority. Today's topics of discussion include Angela's social justice work and activism, more specifically her work with Block. We also discuss prioritizing mental health and self-care in the workplace, as well as the pervasive nature of trauma and its impact on communities of color. We also discussed the impacts of COVID-19 and the racism pandemic, and it was a really wonderful episode. We really hope you enjoy this one. Um, And as always, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. We would especially appreciate it if you could rate and review on Apple Podcast, as that really gets the podcast a little more visible and we get more listeners that way. So thank you so much for your continued support. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Angela, thank you so much for being here on the Unconventional Dyad podcast. We're super excited to have you. Um, To start off, please just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your personal and professional identities, anything you want to let our listeners know. Yeah, so um, I'm 31, born and raised in Milwaukee, um, have literally never lived anywhere else. Um, so really strong Milwaukee roots. Um, it's a it's a choice at this point. Um, I was one of those people after high school, I wanted to move far away and get out of my hometown. Um, and that just didn't work out for me. And, um, you know, staying here was probably one of the best decisions um, I ever made. I got really involved in student organizing. Um, I, I feel like I learned a lot about um, organizing. I got a crash course. I was doing a lot of nonpartisan work um, with the ACLU at the time at UW-Milwaukee. And then 2010 happened and and Scott Walker was elected and things got a little different for our state. Um, And so I learned um, even a bigger crash course in organizing there. Um, And then after I left UWM, I, you know, scrambled to find a job. Um, I started to learn more about what organizing is, knowing that it could be a career um, and that, you know, you can you can actually do it full time and, and it's not just something you do in, in your spare time. And uh, so my first job out of out of college was for the Service Employees International Union. Um, a lot 
super organizing and um, and kind of a lot of the political organizing as well. Um, we had members that were directly impacted um, with a living wage ordinance at the county. So doing a lot of work um, on the political process there and learned a lot about labor organizing. Um, 2016 happened, the election happened, um, and uh, I had worked for an organization called For Our Future at the time, which sole purpose was to elect Hillary Clinton at the time. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm out of a job, I gotta find something else. But I had been venting and ranting about all of the ways that people's analysis was, was off in the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. Everyone wanted to blame our community, um, knowing that we're some of the most disenfranchised and least engaged. And it was very frustrating to see everyone point their finger at us. Um, when turnout was down, almost everywhere. Um, it was down all across the state. And it was down um, in several places across the country, but only our community was being targeted, it felt like. So, um, you know, some folks kind of got in a room and we said, what do we, what do, we do to, to fix this to make sure that we're not waiting for people to engage us? Let's do that work ourselves. Let's do it on a year round basis. So it's not just a couple weeks or a couple months before an election, you know, really kind of taking the lessons learned in some of the gaps and holes in traditional electoral organizing and wanting to do that differently and um, try and be creative with it. And, you know, almost three years later, um, you know, Black is here and um, has made some big adjustments in 2020, but it allowed us to dig deeper into the work and, and learn more and get creative and also be, um, you know, creative in how we're supporting each other too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you tell our listeners about Black, just like goals, mission, vision, that kind of thing? Yeah, so Block was founded in, in November of 2017. We, we took some time to reflect after the 2016 election. And, you know, we said that we were going to engage folks from our own community, we were going to have an ongoing civic engagement conversation, we're going to expand the idea of civic engagement. So it's not just voting. It's, you know, it's being able to call your legislator, it's, it's showing up at a um, city budget hearing and testifying where you think your your tax dollars should go. There's so many different ways to be civically engaged that I think a lot of people don't always realize. And we want to make sure, you know, again, we're empowering our community to, to have those conversations. So we consider ourselves a year-round civic engagement organization. Um, we are really, you know, 2020 aside, we're really known for a really robust and aggressive field program. Uh, we typically would be on doors in between election cycles. So in 2019, when it was rather quiet, we still had um, almost 20 of our ambassadors still knocking on doors, building relationships. So, you know, again, kind of filling those gaps where people kind of pack up and go home, where they're on a year-round basis to really kind of bring people along on their civic engagement journey. Mm -hmm. What do the ambassadors kind of do on their field placements? Can you give us the details of that? Yeah, so our ambassador program um, is split into two parts. We have our civic ambassador program, which is our nonpartisan program. And that's typically um, in between election cycles when we're not talking about politics, we're not talking about, you know, the election, um, digging into people's issues, um, you know, trying to organize around them. You know, last year in, in 2019, um, our, our folks were in small teams and each team was responsible for their own geographic boundaries. And they worked that area from April all the way to December, and they were a constant presence. You know, they were knocking on doors, asking folks, what does it look like for the black community to thrive? And some people were saying, oh, well, we want a speed bump over here. They're like, oh, your neighbor three houses down also said that, you know, speeding on this on this neighborhood is a, um, is a big issue. Have y'all talked about this? 
no? Oh, how about we get like a neighborhood meeting together? I can help kind of bring folks together. Um, we did a lot of cookouts. We did a lot of, um, you know, games with, with kids and, you know, just trying to bring the community together. So that's our nonpartisan ambassador program. And our electoral ambassador program is where we advocate for the candidates that have gone through our endorsement process that we think are best for our community. But something that's part of both of those programs is um, we always start with the question, what does it look like for the Black community to thrive? Because we know that even when we're having, you know, some of the more partisan conversations, we want to show up as full people. We don't want to just exclusively say, hey, vote for this person. You know, we want to do some of that, that deeper education. You know, why should someone care about the sheriff? What's the difference between the sheriff and the, and the police chief? Mm -hmm. um, you know, why should we care about the DA? Why should we care about the state Supreme Court if we're likely never going to go in front of them? You know, doing some of that education on doors as well. Mm -hmm. We try not to lead with candidates because sometimes candidates in and of themselves are not always enough to move people. They're not exciting enough to move people. But we want people to understand understand the roles and responsibilities and the jurisdictions of the offices of the people that we're trying to elect so people have a, a deeper understanding of the political system too. Wow, very cool. That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's something that, you know, a lot of people say all the time, oh, you know, you, you're doing the thing that we talk about all the time. And I realize why people don't do it. It takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of effort. It takes resources. And it takes a lot of commitment. Um, and, you know, we said that we were going to prioritize our field program. So that meant that we had a bare bones staff, but we had, mm -hmm. you know, a big ambassador team so they could be out in the field and talking to, to folks. There's organizations bigger than us, have more resources than us, have been around longer than us. Um, but at the same time, for us, we made it a priority in our budget and just in our values that we wanted to do that year-round engagement and we're going to take that time to do it and it's possible if others want to do that as well. Mm -hmm. Who typically gets involved with Black? Like what kind of individuals do you see coming in to, to work for Black? Yeah, so right now we have a waiting list. We're actually really proud of the fact that we don't have to advertise a lot. I know some folks have to like do paid advertising, um, but we have a waiting list. It's folks that, um, you know, word of mouth at this point. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, typically when we were on doors, there would be times our team members would knock on a door and they said, I want to do what you're doing. You seem really knowledgeable. How can I, you know, do what you're doing? There's some folks on our team now that um, are with us because someone knocked on their door. Um, and then, you know, kind of word of mouth, their friends and family, neighbors, um, and, and other folks in their network. And so, you know, these are folks that are all a part of the Black community. I'm very special and very lucky that I get to go to work every day surrounded with members of my own community. So everybody identifies as Black. Everyone, um, you know, lives in Milwaukee and has deep ties to Milwaukee. Um, there are, it, it's a multi-range, you know, we have a lot of younger folks um, mm -hmm. in their early 20s, and we have a lot of older folks, you know, you know, mid, you know, 40s and, and 50s. And um, it's interesting to see kind of some of the intergenerational dialogue happening. Um, we, we tell people all the time, we're not a youth-centered organization. We like to hype up our, our friends over at Leaders Igniting Transformation. But, you know, we do have a lot of young people that kind of gravitate towards us. Um, you know, some of the folks on my team, unfortunately, haven't had their voting rights restored yet, um, but yet are still knocking and encouraging everyone else to vote. Um, these are folks that have gone through, you know, severe challenges. I think a lot of us in our community has, you know, we, we realize what our triggers are when we're constantly seeing new videotapes of, of people being murdered. Um, so we're, you know, we're trying to heal and grieve and, and kind of come together, but we, 
you know, in, in some way we're a family, you know, we text each other every morning, good morning in our massive 80 plus person group chat. Um, and and it's, a, it's a really special dynamic. And I think it's a place where people can come to be full people and they don't need to kind of check, you know, their trauma or, you know, kind of the joke about calling in black because there's another video and you're like, I don't know if I can go to work and deal with all my white coworkers. We can kind of just be and, and grieve and heal and um, kind of have that family dynamic. And, and that's, that's our team. You know, we're tell people all the time, we are not perfect by any means. We're rough around the edges, but in the most beautiful and genuine way. Yeah. That sounds like a really safe space for people. I hope it is that, you know, that's what we try to do. Um, you know, again, we're, we're not perfect, but we're able to, you know, have learning experiences and, and teachable moments if need be. And I think, you know, just like family, we disagree sometimes, you know, now that it's getting closer to the election, you know, we feel that our tensions are high, but even when we disagree, we're able to kind of talk it out. We're able, you know, when we were in person and we had disagreements, I'd be like, all right, everyone in the big room, we're sitting in a circle. I got a talking stick and we're going to talk this out and we're going to, you know, we're going to cry and we're going to hug it out until we're done. And so hopefully, you know, even when we have our disagreements, I think that we've built such a, a strong bond with our team that when we have disagreements, we're, we'll get over it just like family does, but we're going to be mad in the moment, but we'll be mm -hmm. fine ultimately because we know that we share the same vision and goal too. That's beautiful. Is the safety piece and kind of what you described, like the culture of um, your organization, was that like super intentional from the beginning? Did it kind of come as you went along and figured things out? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Um, I, I knew I wanted to do things differently. I knew I wanted a, a more of a supportive culture. I kept thinking to myself, what would I have wanted as a new organizer, as a baby organizer, learning um, in, in this process, what would I have wanted? And also kind of just like, well, who says we can't have a therapist? You know, who says we can't, you know, move to four day work weeks and have Fridays off? Like who says, right? So being able to, to, to try and figure out what works best for the team. So I knew I wanted to be supportive and really acknowledge the trauma and um, just how, how hard this work can be. I knew I wanted to acknowledge that and, and center that. I just didn't know how. And I think it's kind of evolved into um, radical honesty. You know, I, I try to show up in a way to the team where I don't have this mystery doctor's appointment on my calendar. It's as therapy. I, I tell people I'm going to therapy. I'll be back in an hour, right? Like trying to destigmatize some of these conversations, but then also just figuring out what works for all of us and being able to just effectively communicate. You know, shortly after the protests in Minnesota happened, I remember texting the senior team and I was like, how are y'all feeling today? And it was like seven in the morning and they all texted me back. It was very clear none of us slept that night. And, um, you know, after talking to them, we all agreed we're going to take a mental health day. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's kind of just being able to address the needs of, of, you know, the team. I think for me, I'm always trying to find other ways you know, we, we have our Wellness Wednesdays where we acknowledge it and we encourage kind of this midweek reset. It's a little hard to do it virtually, but um, just trying to find other ways. I'm always trying to think about who can we bring in? Can we bring in someone to do some healing or some trauma therapy? Um, but trying to make that kind of a regular thing um, and, and hopefully be an example for other organizations too. That's amazing. I, I'm really encouraged by how you emphasize and destigmatize um, mental health and mental wellness. Um, Carly and I are both studying clinical psychology in grad school, and I'm sure Carly feels the same way. It's just so important for workplaces especially to do that. And we, I've 
I honestly have not heard of anything quite like this at any other organization. I think that's pretty incredible that you do that kind of work. Yeah, I mean, there's been times um, I when we were in the office, if I you know schedule my therapy in the middle of the day, I'll let folks know like, hey, I'll be back in an hour. And there's one time I came back and I always try to grab some business cards on my way back, right? And I, mm-hmm. I tell folks, I'm like, if folks are interested at the corner of my desk, if you want to talk about it, I'm here. If you just want to grab one and don't want me to know, that's fine too, but my they're here. Um, and then they naturally disappear a few days later. I remember one time um, there's a, a group of our more so younger ambassadors came up to me and said, Angela, can we talk to you about your therapy session? Like, what's your experience like? And I was like, yeah, come in, let's close the door, let's have a conversation. You know, and so I think it's just trying to be that example to kind of break those those walls down um, so people know that they can, they can heal, they can grieve, they can, you know, handle their emotions in a healthy way and we don't need to bottle them up because that's also killing us. Like that added stress is not helping, you know, and as we're constantly being traumatized in real time in the year of 2020. Yeah, you mentioned having a therapist on staff and a four-day work week. Can you talk a little bit about those two things? Yeah, so we don't have a therapist on staff yet. It was written into the budget. We wanted to do that this year. COVID threw a wrench in a lot of our plans. We wanted to have um, the goal uh, ultimately at one point is to have, you know, at least a part-time therapist, you know, two or three times a week that kind of holds these office hours. And then, you know, if people want to utilize them, then they're there um, and they can schedule appointments. And that's the goal ultimately one day. Um, I think it's always best in person, but we still have to figure out the virtual setting. Um, And then, yeah, shortly after the protests um, happened and the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Um, it was around the time, I think it was like Memorial Day, there was an extended, you know, weekend and we were like, oh, the extended weekend felt good. And then, you know, then we ended up taking that mental health day, I think maybe a week or two later. And then we said, these three-day weekends, they actually feel like normal weekends, <laughs> you know, because a lot of us end up having to work or do other things on Saturdays or Sundays. Um, so it doesn't always feel like we get a weekend. So we talked it out. And I just said, for the immediate future, let's just do this. Um, I put an away message on. I had to put it on the team's calendar. We've been doing this a couple months now, but I actually had to put it on their calendar a couple weeks ago because they kept forgetting it. Um, <laughs> we're, we're not good at it. But I think what we say is that um, I don't expect anything from anyone on Fridays. I'm not going to ask anything. I'm not going to schedule anything. Um, But people can use their Fridays for what they want. If they are just like, you know what, I'm not going to take any calls, but I'm going to catch up on emails and I'm going to you catch up on plan writing or grants or someone just wants to lay in bed all day. I was like, your Fridays are whatever you want to do. I know myself, there are things, if I can't schedule it during the rest of the week, I'll schedule something on a Friday. My Fridays are really consumed with what I want to do, which allows me to do some of that work that really um, makes me happy. And it allows me to like read and not feel like I have to, you know, respond to emails every five minutes too. So it's, you know, it's different for everybody, but hoping that people can, you know, feel less pressure to have to respond to everything all the time and can, you know, take that, that day of rest if they need to. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed any tangible effects of that already of taking that 40 week? I mean, I I think everyone likes it. (laughs) You know, I think everybody feels that it's better. Um, You know, it allows them the the space to breathe, even if, you know, they do end up doing work. Like I know myself, I, I work every Friday. I have to, I do my weekly emails. I do, you know, a few things. And get caught up on some admin stuff, but I think 
you know, it allows us to slow down. It allows us to not feel the pressure. And then also, you know, for me, I notice people um, communicate with me differently. If people know that I'm off on Fridays, then they ask stuff of me during the week or they're like, you know what, Angela's not going to see this email till Monday anyway, so I'm just not going to send it until Monday. Um, so, you know, I think people are, are adjusting. and I think hopefully other people are, are having those conversations about if that's something that they can implement in their organization that, you know, this organization that is, you know, under a lot of pressure in a lot of different ways, under a lot of different challenges, understanding the nature of the work that we do is um, talking to Black voters in a swing state. If we, you know, feel that immense amount of pressure, if we can move to four-day work weeks and kind of change this culture of, of campaigning and, and how we do electoral work, then that means I think anyone can. And we can just find ways to, to think outside of the box. Like, we shouldn't be limited in our thinking of, this is what we've always done. Try new yeah. things. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But try to figure out what, what works best for your team. Yeah. Yeah, that's super inspiring. I think COVID has already kind of shifted people's mindsets a little bit. Um, Hopefully there's going to be some long lasting changes from it. But that's super inspiring that you implemented that um, so quickly and that it's worked for you. Um, You've already touched on this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you can speak more specifically about the impacts that COVID-19 has had on your work, on your organization, and also the racism pandemic, how that's impacted your work and organization. Yeah, I think um, for both of those things, it's um, it's been traumatic for all of us. Like we're we're all being traumatized in real time. Um, I, and I don't know if we have enough of those conversations or if we have enough of the healing collectively, like mm-hmm. as a country, um, both of those issues. Um, what, so I think that's that's a, a challenge in itself. Um, I think specifically when it comes to COVID, um, with our team, we have a, a rather large team right now with 2020 and, and all of our ambassadors. So we have 73 ambassadors um, and like nine full-time staff. So we, we're a pretty big team right now. Um, and every time there is a tragedy that strikes in, in Milwaukee, usually someone on our team is connected in some way, whether a direct family member or someone that they knew. Um, and so when there are domestic violence issues, like our team is connected. Um, there's also a lot of times that our, our folks are dealing with domestic violence issues themselves. Um, mm-hmm. When you're hiring folks from the community, you're going to experience the challenges of the community that we're also trying to fight. We can't fight these challenges without not realizing that the same people that are being impacted are also some of those that are on our staff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our mental health, you know, we, we talk significantly about it, but um, some of the ambassadors and some of the staff members have confided in me about, um, you know, having increased anxiety or depression mm-hmm. or imposter syndrome, right? Just like all of mm-hmm. these different things. Um, so, you know, seeing those effects and, and also too, people are losing love ones to COVID directly. So there's kind of the immediate, you know, death and impacts of COVID, but there's also the side effects, the economic, the mental health, the domestic violence, and all of those things have impacted our team in different ways. Um, And then when it comes to the, um, the, the racial reckoning that, that we're in right now. Um, we recently hired um, someone who happens to live in Kenosha and lives, you know, just a few minutes away from where that 17-year-old murdered two people and, and injured another. Um, I think all of us, Milwaukee is about 40 miles away from Kenosha, but it still felt very, very close. It felt very much in our backyard. And I know for me, um, you know, 
Jacob Blake shooting himself, you know, we're starting to see those shootings happen more and more frequently, but we're also seeing this rise in, you know, groups like mm -hmm. the Proud Boys and white militia groups. And I think that part, I think really kind of scared a lot of us. Um, and then also mm -hmm. what that means doing this, this work too, knowing we do this work and knowing that people are driving across state lines, you know, murdering people mm -hmm. for saying that black lives simply matter, not matter more than anyone else, matter and people are getting murdered for saying that so I think it, it's jarring um it's terrifying it's you know this has probably been the hardest year of my professional career ever lots of tears um but I think at the same time it, it also really strengthens I think all of our resolve and that like we have to keep fighting we gotta we gotta dig a little bit deeper to find that energy to get out of bed today even when the world is telling us and giving us every reason not to so it's it's you know I think it's giving us that that little fuel to kind of get over these last um, few days. And, and I think it's not easy and it's draining, but it's, you know, it's, I think put a lot of things in perspective for us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. How can our listeners um, support your work? Yeah, I always give people three different ways. Um, one, uh, because we are a year-round organization, we always need funding on a year-round basis, not just in the presidential years. Um, so if people are interested in supporting our work on a year-round basis, you can go to our website at blockbyblock.org, B-L-O-C-B-Y-B-L-O-C. Um, and there's a donate page. You know, we have our nonpartisan fund, we have our action fund, and then we now have a pack for any federal work as well. Um, but understanding not everyone has disposable income right now. Um, do you know folks or organizations that we should get connected to? Whether it's you have a cousin that does a podcast in his basement and you think I'd be great, um, or you um, have a rich uncle, or you're like, hey, there's a really great organization in Georgia doing similar work and you should get connected. We love to, to get connected to other folks. Um, but then also knowing not everyone has a wealthy network. Um, and so the last thing that everyone can do is amplify our content. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, there's been an internal discussion if we'll get on TikTok. I don't know if I can handle that. Um, but we're on, we're on the socials. And, um, you know, I think it's important, one, to amplify our content because it broadens our message and our reach. But two, it's really important in this moment right now to amplify the lived experiences of organizers and activists. Because right now there are some really tough conversations conversations that are happening um, that need to be happening. You know, everyone's talking to their racist uncle or cousin at the dinner table um, and using and being able to amplify the lived experiences um, that are, you know, that we tell through our social media can be a good conversation starter as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, can you share some of your hopes for the future, maybe, if you can find hope. Yeah, this time. Um, my, my hopes for the future is that um, something that a lot of us say is that we want to organize ourselves out of a job, right? Like, I would love um, to live in a world where white supremacy doesn't exist, so I don't need to have a job, right? Um, and, you know, I would love for us to do all of that work um, where something like Black isn't needed, um, because everything is balanced and, and that's, we have a long way to go for that. Um, and, you know, I think for me, I'm really, really passionate about leadership development and trainings. And that's why it's really woven into a lot of what we do. Cause I'm really, really hopeful for the future. I'm 31, but like, I'm hopeful for the young people. I feel like I'm no longer a youth, right? Like I'm no longer a young person that people talk about. When people talk about young people, they're talking about um, this like TikTok generation that's like, organizing through this platform in a really fascinating way. Um, so I'm, I'm really um, hopeful for young folks. I, there's a, a quote that a lot of us 
um, you know, say, and I think kind of ground ourselves in saying we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. You know, something like Black wouldn't have existed 30, 40 years ago. So we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. And I think that's a, a really good grounding. But I also need to tack on another part of that quote of our future generations will be my wildest dreams. And so I will not solve everything that I want. My job right now is to lay the foundation um, and just to, to do what I can to keep the ball rolling um, for the next generation, even when I get frustrated um, with how long changes is taking to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you see maybe specifically you going in the future, or even block going in the future? If you could look, you know, maybe three, five, 10 years down the line, do you have any specific dreams or hopes? about? Yeah, for me, I don't know where I'm going to be, to be honest. Um, It's (laughs) it's strange, because I'm such a type A personality. I love to plan. I like lists. I like checklists. I like all of that. Um, But I never expected to be doing this work. I entered college thinking I was going to be a doctor doing pre-med, and one day I was going to do Doctors Without Borders, right? So I stopped making plans for my life, because every time I did, it drastically changed. So now I'm just rolling with it, Um, and I'm very happy with where I am. But that also means I don't know where this is going to take me. Um, I I tell the team that um, Black is very, very close to me and and close to my heart. And um, it will always be my baby. But at the same time, I I don't want to be, um, you know, the executive director for 10 to 15 years, because I don't know if that's healthy for an organization. Um, And I want to be able to provide for the next, you know, vision and to, to be implemented. So I know, I know I won't be at block for 15 years, maybe, you know, maybe five or six or so we'll, we'll see. Um, but something that always was, um, kind of a, a dream of mine is to see Block expand to other cities and maybe other states. Mm-hmm. Um, 2020, again, put a damper in our plans, but we wanted to expand to the Racine area, um, which is very close to Kenosha. And, um, you know, we still have those plans. We're hoping that when we're able to be back out in the field and it's safe to do so, we'll start to expand to other places in Wisconsin. And like I said, people have asked us to come to other other states. So we'll see how that how that works in other states. And I, I didn't anticipate, you know, people to say, come to this state, come to this city. So quickly. Um, but we're, we're excited to explore what that looks like. And hopefully, you know, we can have Black affiliates and chapters in, in all 50 states one day. That would be amazing. Yeah. Best of luck with that. I hope it happens. I'll keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, too, about just in general, how this work has maybe impacted you personally mm-hmm. and how it's shaped you. Um, how it's shaped just your life, your identity? Yeah, I think um, it's shaped me in ways where like I've had to find my voice more. Um, I've always been outspoken, don't get me wrong, Um, but like kind of standing in it and owning it a little bit more. um, It's not me saying, hey, I have an opinion. I hope people listen to me. It's I'm the executive director of a really important organization um, in 2020. And there's power in that. There's leverage in that and having to stand in that and to own that. But that also means I have a lot of responsibility. That means I have to call out, um, you know, when I see something problematic. And if that means calling out our progressive friends and their their blind spots, I have an obligation because it's no longer just my opinion. I have a duty and an obligation to my team and to my community. Um, so it made me be a little bit more bold and unapologetic um, in, in, in a way where it's not always comfortable, but it's like, I have to do this. This is the responsibility I have and I'm going to do this because... I owe it to my team to do that. Um, I think I am learning a lot about myself. I'm also feel like I'm, I'm 
I'm 31, so I'm still in that that phase where you're like, who am I as like a person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's like another way of, I feel like you do that in your, when you turn like 18 and like 21, but like, I feel like I'm doing that again as I'm, I'm growing and in, in, mm-hmm. in this role, I've never been an executive director before Black, never had to fundraise to this level. And so just feeling and, and figuring out kind of how I maneuver these new experiences, um, who I am as a leader, reflecting on how I'm showing up as a leader, as a person, um, and then, kind of digging deep and doing that work and that self-care with yourself and creating boundaries that I never really did, which explain a lot. Um, and so being able to establish those boundaries and, um, you know, telling folks, no, it's too late in the day. Uh, send me an email. I'll get back to you tomorrow. Uh, no, don't send me a DM on Instagram if it's work related. Email me, right? It's being able to establish those boundaries. And really, I think for me, finding um, I don't want to say like finding purpose, but finding kind of, um, I don't know, like how I'm, how I'm showing up and, and grounding myself and how I want to live my life, not just for work. Cause a lot of times work consumes mm-hmm. me and I am my work, but having to find other things and, and saying like, what do I want to get out of life that is not centered in work and that I deserve the same things that I'm fighting for. I deserve a healthy, long, thriving, fulfilling life too. And just because I'm fighting for it, that doesn't mean you know, I also don't deserve an eight hour day instead of a 16 hour day, for example. So having to really kind of check myself that um, I'm also a participant in this movement and and not always an executive director. Absolutely. Yeah. Has there been anything in particular that has helped you get yourself in that space? It just sounds like a lot of really emotionally heavy work. So I'm wondering what's helped you, you know, get to the point where you can find your voice where you can be bolder where you can stand up and take you know responsibility for things um yeah I I think I um I just in some ways stopped caring and that sounds very strange um you know when you're constantly being attacked from different angles um I never thought I'd be spending a lot of 2020 talking about white militia and having to plan around that right Mm -hmm. and so what used to be big deals are not as much anymore because it shifts your your perspective because things are so drastically bad right now. Um, so when you when you kind of have that perspective, you're like, oh, I'm gonna stand up in this meeting and say something because you can't tell me anything because I'm already terrified of the Proud Boys and white militia. So what you have to say in this meeting is not gonna be nearly as bad as all the other trauma and all the other things that I'm experiencing right now. Um, and I think being able to talk about it more um, and being honest, you know, continuing to, to not back down to um, what I realized that I didn't realize at the time is that people were watching. And so when I felt that I was standing up by myself and being isolated and alone, people were watching and that gave them permission that they could do the same. Um, and and so then you just kind of start to continue to, to stand up and you continue to, to raise your voice um, and you start to destigmatize it. You start to kind of like help people walk through your thought process instead of just, I'm mad at you for this. It's like, all right, let me tell you why I called this out. Let's talk about imposter syndrome and how that, you know, impacts black women. And let me tell you about how this is manifesting in me and how I'm showing up right now. So even having to walk people through, so people are just seeing, oh, Angela's angry at X, Y, and Z. No, let me peel back the layers of why this is so offensive and how 
I have to do this emotional labor to tell you all this, right? And so I think being able just to be honest with those feelings, and that's really vulnerable. Um, it's not easy. I don't want, you know, listeners to think like, just keep speaking your truth and it's going to be easy. Um, it's not, you know, I, I just recently saw a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt that she said, um, do it in your heart to be true. Um, and because essentially you're going to get criticized for it anyway. So you might as well do the right thing. And, and I think that's just important to continue to do. But that doesn't mean that after I, I do it, that I just go home and I'm like, oh, I'm great. I'll cry about it. And I'm like, that meeting felt crappy and I need to cry it out. And like, now I'm labeled as the angry black woman. And there are times you have to decompress that and process that. But, um, you know, you still kind of got to figure out if you can get up and do the same thing all over again and how you're processing that too. Do you mind talking about imposter yeah. syndrome? It's one of our favorites. Yeah, yeah. On the podcast, maybe how. It's yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm digging a lot into you know how I'm showing up in the world, how I um, am manifesting like certain things that I may or may not realize. So I I, I think about it, and I think for me. Um, I think there's just a lot of pressure on the work that that I do. I know, and we started this conversation um, that when we um, when a, when an election doesn't go a particular way, everyone always wants to blame black folks. We can carry an election, and people are like, yeah, that's cool, great, um, but like no one all, like ever really gives us the credit that we deserve. And so I think a lot of times we feel that, um, or at least I do, I, I feel like I have to work those 16-hour days. I can't stop when everybody else stops and are like, oh, I'm gonna go cook for my family and spend family time. I'm like, no, I have to send these extra 15 emails before I close my laptop, you know. And and I mm -hmm. I feel like there's an added pressure. Um, and, you know, it took a lot to, to get to where I am, you know, to, there are times I literally had to, I felt like I was screaming in the middle of a room to have my voice heard sometimes. Um, and the fact that for the last several days and last several weeks, I'm working 12 hours minimum, um, more like probably 16 or so or more um, a day, I'll wake up, I'll, I'll work, I, I go to bed. And yet I feel, sometimes I feel like I'm running circles on some people but yet they always land and get a cushy gig somehow every time. And so it makes me, I, I think I unfairly compare myself, right? Like they're always landing, they're doing mediocre work. Am I not doing enough? I need to work harder. Um, mm -hmm. But somebody said something to me that offered kind of a reframe of um, imposter syndrome and it's um, oppressor impact syndrome, which like completely shifted my thinking because it's like, I'm great. Like I have a great work ethic. Like these aren't, this isn't due to a lack of self-confidence in me. It's literally how white supremacy, capitalism, the patriarchy are implying these unrealistic standards to make myself not feel like I'm good enough. And that's not a thing reflective of my own self-confidence. That's literally society. And like, it's the impact literally of my oppressors that are, that, you know, lead me to bear this weight. So I thought it was an interesting kind of reframe. And I try to share that as well, that it's not something that, you know, is, is something that we are always responsible for. It's literally being surrounded by all of these messages in society that are telling us that we're not good enough. Yeah. Wow. That's really powerful. I just mm -hmm. got chills listening to you describe that. Um, it, it must be really liberating to be able to, you know, reframe it like that. I mean, yeah, in, in yeah. some ways, right? Just, like, it's it's a journey. I don't know how you fully get rid of it. I don't know if you ever do get rid of, you know, imposter syndrome. But I think sometimes 
like if you're anxious or if you're feeling down, sometimes it's just like, oh, why am I anxious? Why am I feeling down? Like we, that we add that to ourselves because we think it's our responsibility. And so I think by offering that reframe, it kind of takes that responsibility off. And you're like, this is what society is telling me. No wonder I feel this way and I'm going to honor my feelings, but I also know that I'm not responsible. You know, this isn't me not loving myself enough. This is literally being impacted on me. So it does take away some of that weight. Um, but it's still, you know, a journey of, of having to, to figure out and navigate imposter syndrome. It doesn't take it away completely, but I think it, it reframes it enough where it's a little bit more manageable. Yeah, definitely. We have one more question for you that we'd like to end our podcast episodes with. We ask all our guests this, but before we get to that, is there anything else that you want to make sure to share with the listeners? Yeah, I think um, all I would offer is that 2020 has been a really challenging year and we don't know how long it's going to last. Like, yes, 2020 will will run out, but we don't know what 2021 is going to bring. And we need to make sure that we're showing up as full people. We're honoring our feelings. We're not trying to suppress them. I think um, hopefully this pandemic is allowing people to um, dig deep in, in who they are and, and how they're communicating, how they're being effective communicators, but also how they're being kind to themselves and offering themselves grace too. It's a big thing that I learned for myself is like, no, I said I was going to decompress all weekend, but I took some phone calls. Offer yourself some grace. You do what you need in that moment um, and, and and lean into that because I think, you know, it's just been such a tough year that we have to make sure that we're not only supporting others, but supporting ourselves too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This might actually take us into our last question really well. Um, so this podcast is about learning. It's about having difficult um, conversations that we don't typically have maybe in our everyday lives. So with that in mind, what is maybe one thing that you've learned over the course of this past year specifically, either about yourself, about your work, about the world, one thing that you've learned that you can kind of reflect on um, and how it's impacted? Yeah, um, I feel like I've, I've learned a lot. I think the big things that stand out to me that I'm still reflecting and, and digging deeper into is how I show up in times of crisis and chaos. Um, there are times, oddly enough, I feel very, very focused. And it's kind of like in times of crisis, like, okay, what needs to get done? Tunnel vision, we need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and I've been, part of me is just like, is there something wrong with me? Like the world is on fire and I'm okay right now. Um, and I think I'm able to like do what needs to get done um, in, in the immediate short term. And then I have to kind of follow up and make sure that I'm going back and actually processing those feelings that like I, I didn't necessarily have time to in that moment because I'm literally dealing with the crisis. So I think being able to find that balance of like, how do you continue and do what needs to get done when the whole year feels like a crisis? But because um, I, 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 it's like I'm a high-functioning, anxious executive at some points, right? Like that, that, mm-hmm. that can be great for the short term, but it's not good for the long term if you're not able to actually process your feelings and, and take that time to do so. So I think it's a, it's a friendly reminder for me. Um, but yeah, it was something very strange that I was like, how am I actually oddly calm when I keep dealing with all of these crises in this moment? Um, and also understanding that like, when you're used to trauma, um, you know, you kind of, you're always, you're used for, you're used to the other, waiting for the other shoe to drop, I think in some, some ways. So I think that, um, oddly enough, childhood trauma worked for me. Um, I can actually use it as a way to kind of um, manage crisis and, um, and chaos a little bit better. But 
have having to also remind myself to process those feelings too. Yeah, that's beautiful. Super important. Um, thank you. Angela, thank you so much for everything yes. you've shared. Thank you today. so much. This has been. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. Um, yeah. Appreciate that. Hello, Unconventional Dyad podcast listeners. We are so excited that you are joining the conversation with us. If you're liking what you're hearing and you would like to support the podcast, there are a few different ways to do that. We have a Patreon page now. So if you visit patreon.com slash unconventional dyad, you can support us through four different support tiers. You can also support us through the Anchor app. There's a support function and you can choose from three different tiers from as little as 99 cents per month. We really hope that you are liking the content so far. You can also check out our website where we post weekly blogs that you can comment on. And we hope that you join in the conversation with us. Let us know what you think.